back to the big show. This is As Lutheran As It Gets, episode 69, and we are your hosts, Christopher Gillespie. So, has anyone ever asked why we have a swan for our logo? Uh, and I am Donovan Riley. Uh, no. <laughs> okay. It's one of those uh, metaphysical questions. Is that it? I think. It's Luther's swan. Oh, it's... Oh, but I've, it's an origami swan. I know. I was thinking of Blade Runner. It is from Blade Runner, and it is from Luther's seal. That's a unicorn, but... Yeah. No, he actually does make a swan, too. There's more than one origami figure. Oh, that's right. Figure. No, the swan's every time on the piano, that, right? Right. Every time Edward James almost is in the scene or has, contributes to the scene, he leaves an origami creature. And so, yeah, there's a swan. And so, when I was thinking of the logo, as I was designing the logo... I saw Luther's swan and I was thinking about Blade Runner and therefore the origami swan. Yeah, it makes sense. I figured, you know, if you've listened this long, um, thank you uh, for being with us and uh, right. probably, you know, give something back. I, maybe go. that's what we do every week, but. Right. <laughs> <laughs> a making of Yeah, that's segment. right. That's right. A little thing at the, up front. So. so that's why that's there. Luther's swan. Why, why did Luther have a swan? Uh, Eleutherius, Luther, and... Oh, it's his name. That's right. Well, also, though, it's a prophecy from Jan Hus when he was being taken to be burned at the stake. Mm. Um, Hus means goose. Right. And so he said, today you cook the goose, but uh, something, something, um, the one who comes after me, uh, the swan, essentially, oh, wow. in reference to the swan. And Luther was aware of that myth and therefore picked up on that and said, Hus the goose got cooked, but the swan will do the work with well, a swan will fly free. Huh. So this is like um, creating your own little, what, moniker or mm -hmm. I'm gonna say icon? Well, it became his family crest. When you walked into the Black Cloister, it was on the wall, I think directly opposite the front doors. Hmm. In fact, I think in Roland Byton's Christmas book and Easter book, the inside illustration of Luther with the lyre with his kids, one or the other maybe, I could be wrong, but it's a woodcut and the crest that's above them is the swan. Huh. Yeah. And apparently, Elector Frederick had a dream about Luther nailing the 95 Theses. There you go. So there's this thing about like prophecy. Mm-hmm. Huh. Especially late Middle Ages because um, in the late Middle Ages, apocalyptic movements and apocalyptic literature is very popular. Because again, the Turks were marching, the, the Muslims led by Suleiman the Magnificent, yeah. and were coming uh, from the East, and plagues were very common, obviously, uh, for those of you who don't know, in the late Middle Ages, not a lot of good hygiene. And it was an apocalyptic time. People died regularly, In one of the traditions was that you didn't name your child until they were a year old, because you did not want to waste a name on a baby that was going to die. Wow. So uh, Luther says in 1531, commentary on the alleged imperial edict, um, St. Jan Hus, John Hus, prophesied about me when he wrote from his prison in Bohemia, they will roast a goose now, for Hus means a goose in Czech, mm -hmm. but in a hundred years, they will hear a swan singing that they will have to there put up with. And yep. that is the way it will be if God wills. Uh, in the Weimar, there's a uh, footnote at the beginning of his imprisonment in Constance at the end of 1414, thus a half year before his death at the stake, Huss wrote to his friends in Prague the words that sound like a prophecy, quote, and this same truth has sent to Prague many falcons and eagles, which surpass the other birds in sharpness of vision, in replacement of the one weak and easily eliminated goose. High mm -hmm. above they are flying back and forth in the grace of God and snatching many birds for Christ Jesus, who will make them strong and will establish all his faithful. So, wow. What, yep. what a story. There you go. Now everybody's learned something new. Yeah. And uh, I think swans are pretty too, which, uh, uh, so they're, they're kind of an icon of the gospel. Ill-tempered, arrogant yeah, little exactly. birds. <laughs> you, you don't get too close, especially when they're nesting. Never turn your back on a goose. We had a we had a swan on campus at the Fort Wayne or Seminary. Swan, I'm sorry. Yeah. And they had to have it removed because uh, she nested. Yeah, right. And she attacked. Yes, absolutely. No yeah. Swans and geese. Ill-tempered creatures. <laughs> yes. Pretty pretty good then icon for Luther. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so this week we are going to shift gears from uh, Philip Melanchthon's lo Loci Communes or the Loci Communes. 
And we covered the power of the law mm -hmm. in the previous three episodes. Please go back if you have not already listened to those. It's very powerful stuff. Very good. Uh, not but us. Now we're gonna Melanchthon's writing. Yeah, Melanchthon's writing. Sorry. Let me. This let me is exactly. <laughs> let me be clear. Not us. Uh, this week, though, we're going to jump into the power of the gospel. Mm -hmm. And this is on page 84 of the Library of Christian Classic, Classic Ichthus edition, uh, <laughs> edited by Wilhelm Pauk. This is what happens when it's a Monday morning and you're reading ahead of yourself. Correct. And you get to Ichthus, but say Clathic, or you're just a Castilian Span Spaniard. Who wants a Spanish Inquisition? That's right. Nobody no wants one expects Spanish the Spanish Inquisition. Inquisition. But as, as powerful as his work on the law is, we're going to dive into this on the power of the gospel, page 84, like I said. And let Melanchthon now exegete the scriptures on what is the gospel and what exactly is the power of the gospel. Very good. So I'm going to, he, he kind of, this is coming right on the heels of the power of the law, the section on the power of the law. So I'm going to jump forward a sentence just for the sake of continuity. So you, because he makes a, a reference back to what we've already read. Mm -hmm. So it might be confusing if we start there. So I'll jump midway. If the afflicted conscience believes the promise of grace in Christ, it is resuscitated and quickened by faith as the following examples will reveal wonderfully. So there you have it in a nutshell. He, he nails it from the very beginning, the afflicted conscience. So what kind of a conscience? One that is afflicted. That is one that is burdened, one that is attacked. And I want to point this out again, because mm -hmm. it's a very important point is that conscience means something different to a pre-modern Philip Lincoln than it does to a post-modern Christian. Yeah. I can't remember which shows we talked about it, right. but I know we brought it up before it bears repeating. That is actually a black keys lyric. You realize? <laughs> you know this is uh, our meta life is, right yeah this is where my brain is at this morning you write you ended up writing a, a book no, no, that's no, no, a reflection no, 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 on no, no. an interview no, 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 with john cleese no, 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 in 1979 you didn't even know it uh something about a girl i think it was in the second album is it called about a girl something about a girl i don't know anyways it bears repeating <laughs> that the conscience for a pre-modern is your sense of standing in relation to another person now in relation mm. to God and in relation to your neighbor. What is your sense? How do you stand? What's the relationship like? What's the condition of your relation to God? What's the condition of your relation to your neighbor? But conscience is a relational word. Is it so then related to reputation? Sure, absolutely. Right? Your conscience is internal, reputation is external, maybe? Yes. Pre-modern understanding of conscience is an external reality. It's an external relationship. Something's outside of you. And how do you stand in relation to that thing? Oh, that so person? conscience is also external for pre-modern. Yes. Okay. It's determined by that thing that is outside of you. Whereas in post-modernity, because of Freud and psychoanalysis, it becomes an internal process. Mm, okay. And the example I always like to use is Jiminy Cricket from Pinocchio. Right. Let your conscience be your guide, he sings. Or famously, the angel on one shoulder and the devil on the other. That in the modern or postmodern world, conscience is something that happens internally. It happens inside of you. And it's really your sense of relation to yourself. Mm. And at root, it's a moral question. Right. Versus pre-modern, it's not a moral question. It's a relational question. Yeah. If you want to see an exposition on um, the relation of good, evil, conscience, good conscience, bad conscience, uh, watch Good Omens. Mm -hmm. You know, where you've got on Amazon Prime, yeah, yeah, where you've got the you know, demon and angel, but neither of them are morally um, in right. line with what you would expect a demon or an angel to be. Well, and the primary conceit is did the angel do the wrong thing and the demon accidentally do the right thing? <laughs> and did God know about it the whole time and actually plan right. it that way? Did the angel do the wrong thing thinking he was right? And did the demon do the right thing thinking he was wrong? And did God know it the whole time? What is meant by the ineffable will? That's right. The ineffable will from the very beginning. That whole question is, what is an ineffable will anyways? Well, it's ineffable. <laughs> we don't question it. <laughs> right. But, uh, but that internal, you know, between those two, the angel and the demon, you see kind of that internal conflict at play. Right. It's like what's right and wrong. And, right. and is it bound up in identity? Is it bound up in... Right. But it ends up being this kind of internal conflict um, where you have to try to resolve it. Right. So the afflicted conscience in a modern sense, afflicted conscience in a modern sense would be you in relation to yourself, you're out of whack. Mm -hmm. There's something in relation to yourself, you're not right. We think of the self-improvement movement in a, in a nutshell. We've all got our demons, right? 
Right. Mm -hmm. As we were just talking about before we go on air and Jordan Peterson talking about opening, you know, going into your subconscious and confronting those demons that are in these cages. Mm, Open the cage and confront that demon and go, you're not real. You're an invention of my ego or you're an invention of my id or my seat, you know, whatever it might be. Versus here, afflicted conscience would literally mean that your relationship to God is out of whack. As defined by God's own word. Right. God's word of law. Externally. Mm -hmm. external word of law exactly so that's also i think helpful in the sense of understanding modern christianity which we would call enthusiasm because that's the way that luther and the confessions determine it god within ism and this is why oh you don't mean like really excited ism no not 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 super excited ism but rather (laughs) god within ism Mm -hmm. that this is why in modern christianity you have the movement away from preachers and away from the sacraments Mm. and away from the congregation as an external reality of the body of Christ. Because if my conscience is an internal dialogue I'm having with myself, then the word of God is also becoming an internal monologue or dialogue that I'm having with myself. And therefore law is, well, you're, you're not, you don't, you haven't learned to love yourself yet. Mm. You haven't learned to forgive yourself. You haven't learned to take care of yourself. And the gospel then, the promise being, learn how to forgive yourself, learn how to love yourself the way that God made you, uh, these kinds of things. Or either just redefine what real is or what's true for you. Well, that helps too, yeah. Yeah. Words words don't matter. There's no objective reality. That's a soft way to deal with, with those demons, right? <laughs> Versus Philip, Philip already assumes that there's an objective reality and an objective truth, which is God and your neighbor. Hmm. And so if we are afflicted in our conscience, it's because we no longer believe the promise of grace in Christ, or we doubt it, or we're confused about it. Therefore, how is it resuscitated? How is it enlivened by faith? Well, it comes back to the whole matter of the promise and faith clinging to the promise, Mm -hmm. is that the gospel must have an object in order for it to be true. The object being Jesus. And we talked about, you know, Philip's treatment of what the scriptures teach on um, the, the purpose of God's law. And that if it, it it isn't an end unto itself, and and right. maybe that's a challenge with the law that we like to approach it as a as a rehab project, right? Yes, but it actually right. isn't given to reha- rehabilitate you, but to kill you. Yes, to increase the trespass beyond all measure, right? And all of the other uh, scriptural metaphors that Philip draws draws upon to to exposit it, or as he says here, driven to despair, um, or the condition of the condemned right? Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. I'm damned. That's it. That, and that's the right. conclusion of God's law um, on, on the afflicted conscience. Right. Hmm. So now the following examples that reveal this thesis. In Genesis chapter 3, the sin, repentance, and justification of Adam are described. After Adam and Eve had sinned and were looking for coverings for their nakedness, for we hypocrites have the habit of relieving our consciences by making amends, which would be the <laughs> per satisfacciones nostras, making amends. We try to relieve our conscience by making amends. That is, we try and say, I'm sorry, I'll do better next time. Hide in the bushes, sew together yes. some fig leaves. Yeah. Right, right. Like your children, again, we talked about your children <laughs> kind of pushing all, pushing everything into the closet and closing the door and pretending like, oh, look, I clean my room. If that if that relieves your conscience, um, yeah, right. just wait till I open the closet door. <laughs> right. So, hypocrites that we are, we have a habit of relieving our consciences by making amends. Hmm. So, Adam and Eve were called to account by the Lord, but his voice was unbearable. Under these conditions, neither coverings nor pretexts excused their sin. Convicted and guilty, the conscience lies prostrate when it is directly confronted with sin through the voice of God. They flee, and Adam explains the cause of their flight when he says, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked. Genesis 3, verse 10. Note the confession and the acknowledgement by the conscience. In the meantime, Adam eats his heart out in grief until he hears the promise of mercy. The word spoken about his wife, that her seed would bruise the serpent's head. Even that the Lord clothed them. Oh, even that the Lord clothed them did something to strengthen their consciences and is unmistakably a sign of the incarnation of Christ. Mm -hmm. 
For it is that flesh which in the last analysis covers our nakedness and destroys the confusion of trembling consciences on which the insults of the reproachful have fallen. Psalm 69. Namely, the flesh of Christ. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Hmm. So God covering them is a sign of the incarnation of Christ. And it, and it was good news for them. Right. I was going to say, again, in relation to God, they hid themselves because mm-hmm. God's word was unbearable. His voice was unbearable. And yet what does God do? He comes to them. He calls out to them, Adam, where are you? He asks them the question, who told you? He disciplines them. This is the way it's going to be for you, Adam. This is the way it's going to be for you, Eve. However, he then caps off all of that with the promise, as he notes here. Mm-hmm. He, you will bruise his heel. You will poison him. You will strike him with your poison, but he will crush your skull. And they, they definitely heard that as good news, as comfort. Right. Uh, Notice, even though when he's <laughs> uh, applying curses to them, I mean, it's just one after another, right? They uh, yeah. first, first the woman, then the, then, then the man, then the serpent, right? They each get devastated. You're right. Exactly. Brought, brought low, but not again for the purpose of that promise in three fifteen. Right. Yeah. Notice the threefold curse, the disciplining of the Lord is. It's all about the earth. It's all about the dirt. That mm, is. Yeah. They are being reminded of, again, from the dirt you came to the dirt you shall return. Right. Adam, Adama, that you've forgotten yourself, your dirt. You are carbon-based life forms that I created out of nothing. Or in a more complimentary way, creature. I'm creator. Yes. Yeah, right. You've lost your, you've lost your relationship, right? Yes. You re- you've lost your relationship to the creation and you've lost your relationship to me then. Hmm. And vice versa. When you lose your relationship to me, you lose your you lose your proper relation to the creation itself, which was played out by experience. Yeah, even creation rebels against them. Right. That's what I was going to say is that you see this almost every three or four months of somebody deciding that they are going to go and love an animal <laughs> that does not reciprocate their affection, whether it's the monkey, the you know the gorilla cage, or the polar bear enclosure, or the lions, or we were talking the other night again about there's a video going around of this Japanese or Chinese, they're in a car and they're going through a tiger sanctuary and the husband and wife get in a fight and the wife gets out of the car and storms off. Oh. And then the mother gets out of the car and the female tiger nails the mom first wow. and she's just gone and then comes back and nails the wife. And it's like, I've never been in an argument with my wife that has gotten so bad <laughs> that she would jump out of the car in the middle of a tiger sanctuary. And yeah. the in 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 an absurdly funny way, the man keeps his hands at ten and two on that wheel the whole time it's happening. He doesn't even make a move to get out of that car. Well, well there's nothing he may he can love do. her, but he self preservation takes over. Yeah, that's like I'm right. trying to decide whether or not to fight the moss in the backyard. Right. Like, um, no, I think the moss really? is going to win. Yes. Right. <laughs> maybe not today. Maybe not tomorrow. But eventually, the war will be won by the moss. <laughs> and that's the point: is that. There is the law. You are dirt. You are a creature. Mm-hmm. And what you have done by turning away from my word, by turning away and taking what was not given to you in the way of gift, has resulted in this, that our relationship is broken. That's why you went and hid yourself. But also your relationship to all creation is broken. Yeah. But and the power of the gospel is... <laughs> right. Going to restore all that. Don't worry about it. And uh, one of the confessions here, I've done some work on architecture... Um, which is interesting, you know, even though we inherited a lot of our structures, we um, applied new meaning to them. Sure. And so um, in churches where you enter by the font, <clears throat> what do we confess? Mm-hmm. We, we confess that you're clothed in Christ through your baptism, right? Mm-hmm. And you come into a sanctuary that um, many of ours are decorated like a garden. Right, right. Right, mm-hmm. so there's leaves, there's canopy, there's trunks, there's trees. I think I've talked about this before. And, uh, and, and you come in the garden and you come in to eat. And you get to eat of the tree, the fruit of the mm-hmm. tree of Christ, right? right, right. His body and blood. So it's like that great reversal of what happened in the garden is restored for us in the church. I think it's a wonderful confession. Well, I was going to say the the perversion of this, you'll notice, and this is especially prevalent in the Old Testament, is where do all of these um, religious cultists gather to worship? They mm-hmm. worship in forest groves mm-hmm. and on top of mountains. They not, enter into not the forest. Not appointed one, but of self-appointing. Right, yeah. they just find a forested grove, they enter into the middle of it, 
They set up an altar, they offer their sacrifices, they feast, they drink. Usually it's orgiastic and because it's usually a fertility cultist, right? But notice again, the tree of life becomes the virginal woman. In this case, the high priestess, not God in his word. Hmm. And there is an altar, but the sacrifice is not, it's a blood sacrifice, but it's not the sacrifice given by God to us as a gift, but our sacrifice to the gods by way of our sacrifice, our offering. So it's a, it's a horrible uh, distortion of the garden, really. Right, exactly. And so you'll notice, especially in the prophets, right, how God condemns these practices. The high places, yeah. The high places and in, in the wooded areas. And this is why... Um, I explained, we were talking, uh, Tolkien the other day, my kids and I, and fairy circles. There are circles of mushrooms in a forest grove, mm. and those were believed to be doorways to the fairy realm. And uh, at the right time of the year, when the moon is right, usually again, the solstice in the harvest and the planting times of seasons. Times and seasons, the, signs. Yes, exactly. Yeah. That's when the fairies would come out and play, right? And if you timed it right, and you entered the circle and danced with the fairy queen, you would be lost for decades sometimes and return an old man to your village. And even though it had been a nighttime that passed for you. And you see this in Greco-Roman myth with Pan mm, and Pan yeah. leads the virgins of the village away into the woods and they all come back pregnant with his babies and they've lost track of time. And every time they hear the call of the flute, they run away back into the woods. But again, it's all, it's all a perversion of the original story. Wow. The, yeah. Yeah. That's what, so, well, that's what we do. But I would say, I would say the Christian church is a, um, yeah, it's the faithful answer. <laughs> Hopefully. Yeah. But notice in, in, cause you drew this out, all of these, these perversions of this original narrative are, how do we make amends for mm -hmm. sinning against the gods? Yeah. yeah. Because when things go wrong in our life, that's a sign that we have sinned against the gods. The gods are unhappy with us. They're not pleased with us. So what must we do then to get back on the good side of the gods? Well, we got to go and we got to make amends. Well, and we've talked about, you know, self-appointed, um, we using the language here of making amends, but doing it by your own determination, um, that they're ultimately unfulfilling, right? Yeah, right. You're just, you're just, there's no confidence. You, you can't say, has it been enough? Is it good enough? Um, even, even trying to make amends by way of God's law, yeah, which right. God has appointed, um, that's a false and misleading dream, as the hymn says, you know, that right. we ourselves right. could redeem. It, you, you're like, am I ever gonna get there? And the answer is supposed to be for the faithful, no. <laughs> right, right, right. No, no, I must do this for you. Um, give it to you by way of gift. Um, yes. For it to actually, for you actually to be comforted, to be confident, to be hopeful, um, or to be at rest even, to have a Sabbath rest. Right. Mm. So now the next example that Philip goes into. We recalled before how David was undone by the voice of the prophet Nathan, and he certainly would have perished if he had not at once heard the gospel, quote, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Second Samuel 12, verse 13. Some think that only allegories are to be looked for in the narratives of the Old Testament. Still true. Right. But here you see how much you can learn from this one example of David, if you consider only the literal meaning. In fact, this alone is to be considered, for by it, the Spirit of God has richly shown us the works, both of his wrath and of his mercy. What more evangelical expression can be conceived of than this? Quote, the Lord has put away your sin. Is this not the sum of the gospel? or of the preaching of the New Testament, sin has been taken away. You may add to these examples many stories from the Gospels. Luke chapter 7, 37 through 50, tells of the sinful woman who washes the feet of the Lord. He consoles her with these words, quote, your sins are forgiven, verse 48. And what is better known than in the story in Luke chapter 15 of the prodigal son who confesses his sin? how lovingly his father receives, embraces, and kisses him. In Luke 5, chapter 8, Peter, stunned by the miracle, and what is more, struck in his heart, exclaims, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Christ consoles and restores him by saying, Do not be afraid, etc. Verse 10. From these examples, I believe it can be understood what the difference is between law and gospel and what the power of the gospel is, as well as that of the law. Here we go. 
Mm-hmm. The law terrifies. The gospel consoles. Period. Full stop. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, so this is not some kind of abstract use. This is, he's very precise here. And I was going to say, does it get much simpler than that? Well, and it's active. The law right. terrifies. terrifies. The law doesn't just make you think about your sin in a more serious way or something. Right, right. right. You go to your room and you think about what you've done for a while. And Which, when you're ready to change your attitude, then come back downstairs. <laughs> Whereas if you say, um, there will there is punishment for what you've done. Right. That actually terrifies you. <laughs> right. Yeah. But how simple is this and how quickly and easily do we screw this up? <laughs> the law terrifies. The gospel consoles. Full stop. That's it. Maybe, um, maybe it's the deceit of confusing law and gospel is that we do that. Um, we like to confuse things. We actually want to confuse things. Well, yeah, it allows us to make amends. Yeah. So there's some gray area. If we confuse right. law and gospel, say that the law sometimes terrifies, it doesn't always right. do that. Um, right. Sometimes it's useful and practical for right. us. And, and the gospel consoles. Um, if. If. Yeah. Right. Then then there's this like, it puts, well, it puts you in the middle of it <laughs> rather than. Right. It's, it's the law terrifies, but, and the gospel consoles if. It's the ifs and the buts. It's the conditional clauses we like to throw in. Yeah, that's true. And properly speaking, uh, I don't know when he's going to get to this, um, whose law and whose gospel is it? It's right. the Lord's and right. who, who makes it effective or who actually, you know, the operation of it is the Lord and namely the right. Holy Spirit. Right. Mm. And, and he doesn't have to, but if I were to update this, so mm. to speak, I would include the power of God's word of law and the power of God's word of gospel to clarify, like you just pointed out, who exactly is running the verbs. And that's just, of course, a reaction to the things that have happened <laughs> since in Melanchthon the 20th wrote century. This. Yes. Yeah, right. I was yeah. going to say in the 20th century in particular, law and gospel were abstracted and made into ideas or principles. Mm-hmm. And the problem, or if you want to call it that, the problem with an idea is it needs meaning. It is in search of not only meaning to be injected into it, but how are you going to work this out? Right. This is a word of God. And I know both of us emphasize this an operative word of God. It does what it right. says. Right. God's word does what he says it does, regardless of whether you believe it or not. And and thereby also he does it, not us. Right. This is Luther's whole point in the large catechism on the sacrament of the altar in basically the first and second paragraphs of, it doesn't matter if your pastor believes these words are true or not. It doesn't matter if you believe these words are true or not. It's God's word. It's true whether you believe it or not, which is why Paul warns, you can eat this to your own judgment. Mm -hmm. Because if you're saying to yourself, well, this is just plain old bread and wine, or, well, I've got to do something to deserve this mm-hmm. and prove to God I'm worthy. No, no. The, the word is not dependent upon your belief or your earnestness or your amendation of your life. God's word is God's word. It does what it says. And similarly with baptism, it's not a biblical illusion, but I think it makes sense, right. um, is that somebody says, well, I'm just not ready to be baptized, which I've had happen. And yes. uh, the answer is, yeah, that's exactly why oh, we're going yeah, exactly. to be course, baptized. Of course you're not ready. Nobody no is. Nobody believes ready. it. Right. That's the whole point. Uh, right. You might desire it, um, even maybe in some kind of, mm-hmm. I don't know, it's faithful, but which comes first, faith, baptism. We, we get into the whole operation. How does God work? And does he mm-hmm. always work exactly, precisely the same way? And um, that's a little bit of a philosophical um, conjecture, I think, as we get all caught up in that is he, he has promised to work by baptism because his right. word's attached and his word does right. what it says. Right. And that's enough. Yeah. And it gives faith because he says it does. And it gives the spirit one Lord, because he says it does. One faith, one baptism. Mm-hmm. Baptism now saves you. Uh, this not by our own works so that no one may claim to be righteous. It's the work of the spirit, regenerating, renewing, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's given us words to actually right. believe. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. Again, faith needs an object. Mm-hmm. So Philip continues then in case the law terrifies and the gospel consoles isn't enough of an explanation for you. The law is the voice of wrath and death. The gospel is the voice of peace and life. And to sum up, quote, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, as the prophet says, Jeremiah chapter seven, verse 34. That's the, the gospel is the voice of the bridegroom. Yes. And the voice of the bride. Hmm. Calling you to the party. And he who is thus encouraged by the voice of the gospel and trusts God is already justified 
On this I shall soon say more. (laughs) Christians well know how much joy and gladness that consolation brings. And here belong those happy words the prophets use to describe Christ and the church. Isaiah 32, 18, quote, My people will abide in a peaceful habitation, in secure dwellings, and in quiet resting places. And in Isaiah 51, verse 3, Joy and gladness will be found in her, thanksgiving and the voice of song. Jeremiah chapter 33, verse 6, I will reveal to them abundance of prosperity and security. Jeremiah 33, verse 9, And this city shall be to me a name of joy, a praise and a glory before all the nations of the earth. And Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 9, I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call on the name of the Lord. Psalm 21, verse 6, Thou dost make him glad with the joy of thy presence, etc. And Psalm 97, verse 11. Light dawns for the righteous and joy for the upright in heart. Thanks for the examples. Many. Right? Yeah. Uh, This is an area that really has been a struggle uh, for me pastorally, um, but I think maybe for many Christians, as they they ask the question, uh, why is our congregation not a happier or more joyous place mm-hmm. where, yep. where is the joy what happened we, we seem to lost our first love as paul would say right right um and uh, for me pastorally the answer is uh, more forgiveness more sacrament of the altar well, i was gonna say it is called the feast the wedding feast of the lamb without end the more more of the, the, feast the gift to of come. baptism um right uh, you know, the, the means by which the Lord has promised actually to bring right. comfort, hope, peace, and joy. But right. but again, when you ask, uh, where is their joy? I think the, the impulse, the natural impulse is to say, we need to uh, command it. We need to force it. We have to find ways to increase our joy, right? Mm-hmm. Apart from actually where he promises to do it. Um, so by turn actually- Turn to a legalistic exercise? Yeah, to tr- try to, to bring joy about by law, right? Be more I joyful. I don't think that's right. That's like getting in the car with your kids to go on summer vacation, like Christmas, again, uh, National Lampoon's uh, vacation, going to Wally World, mm. or a Christmas vacation. We're going to have a good time. Yeah. And you're going to have a good time. <laughs> that's exactly right. And this right. is going to be the greatest time that anyone's ever had. It's like, mm, you're doomed. Yeah. <laughs> that's not how this works. Yeah. And your dead aunt on the roof of the car. Yeah. Right. <laughs> it's an icon of how well it goes. <laughs> right. But this is, it's such a great point is, when you, unfortunately, in the past 200 or so years, maybe 300 years, we have fallen into this, this ditch. We have ghettoized ourselves to such an extent that we actually believe that the gospel can promote sin and that the gospel can actually produce sin. Mm, Too much gospel promotes sin. Yeah. It's a subtext and it's not new to our generation. It's been around for a while. Just go back and read texts. But nonetheless, it's the language of giftedness is pushed to the background, if if it's even spoken at all. The language of promise is conditioned; it's it's put within boundaries. The language of joy, as you said, is forced, mm-hmm. or it's it's perfunctory language, but it's not a reality. At least, at least fake it till you make it, right? I'm not down with that. You know that. <laughs> Face it till you make it. Don't fake it. Face well, it. I actually said this uh, in, you know, again, pastoral practice. I said to him, I said, look, even if you're not quite sure, um, you know, about your amens, at least make it sound like you actually believe it. <laughs> Just face it. Just face the truth. <laughs> Just try. I mean, put some, put some effort into it and, you know, it'll work out. Well, sure. I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. But nonetheless, it's when you take away the language of giftedness, when you take away the language of promise, when you take away the unconditionality of both law and gospel Mm -hmm. and begin to qualify one than the other, it's inevitable because they're both God's word. They both lead us to Christ. Then you have to replace that with something. And when you replace God's unconditional words with conditional words, (laughs) then the liturgy becomes conditioned, piety becomes conditioned, ecclesiology becomes, everything becomes conditional. The sacraments, for example, right? Saying it right, doing it right. Right, exactly. Everything becomes conditional upon usually our actions, Mm -hmm. our sincerity, our earnestness, our honesty, so forth and so on. Even our belief in it. And our belief in it, yes. Faith in our own Mm faithfulness. Yeah. And then we, we get the verbs all mixed up and 
then as you noted, the law isn't terrifying. It's just scary or nagging. <laughs> and the gospel isn't joyous. It's just all right. It's good news, we were I guess. We were talking about this over the weekend that, um, you know, the, the Roman church has the language of a valid mass or a valid Lord's mm -hmm. Supper. Um, and so what they do is they take what is meant to be gift, given by way of gift, um, you know, take bread and wine, say these words. Yes. Um, and it's edifying, it is edifying to add to those words, other words of promise that that bear witness to it, like glory be God on, on high and peace on earth, you know, mm -hmm. or, or to pray the prayer, uh, Lord's Prayer. I mean, there's, what do we call them? The five pillars of the divine service. Hey, you review right. it, kids. But, um, but there's a way that Rome says, if you don't have all those elements, it's no longer valid. We're actually going to put conditions or restraints on whether or not really the Holy Spirit will work through that very particular word we call the word right. of institution, the verba, right? Right. Um, which, I mean, in th I, I don't even think it's in theory. In actual practice, those words are enough. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and yet we God's will say, if it doesn't have a Lord's Prayer, then is it really going to be valid? Is it even actually a Lord's Supper anymore? Right. Like I know that's apostolic tradition, and we do want to uphold it, I think, um, for good practice and uh, uniformity, uh, well, even for just for what, for the sake of faith and, and not burdening consciences, that kind of thing. Right. But, but in the end, it's the word, those very particular words that are the thing. Right. And we, all right. the other conditions that we put on top of it, um, as if, as if you, if you forgot to pray the Lord's prayer, which is, I've seen it happen that now it's no longer Christ's body and blood. Right. Or <laughs> let's say you are right in the middle of the divine service and right in the, right in the middle of the words of institution, you, you muck it up, right? You muff it. Does that mean we have to repeat the entire order of service now? We have to go back to the beginning and reset and do it right. Or do you simply stop? and then start over. It was like, a, I remember a speech, it was one of these confirmation speeches, you know those things? Uh, it, was, it was a hip thing to do back in the 80s. And, <laughs> uh, and I remember one in very very particular, he started reading and he's like, and he, and he messed, or maybe it was like a Christmas Eve pageant, we'll use that as a better example, Christmas Eve pageant, start reading the gospel and you're like, oh shoot, I said that wrong, and then go back and say it again. You know, and it's like, mm -hmm. Now it's no longer an, it's a valid gospel reading because right. you, you didn't say the words perfectly or you, you mispronounced it or you added a word or whatever it is. And mm -hmm. uh, I understand yeah. faithfulness to, you know, being, you know, being precise, I guess is a good way to right. put it. Fell in love with a girl by the White Stripes. That's the name of the song I was thinking of. Fell I was going to say, it's not, it's not, yeah, it's not That's Black what, Keys, it's, it's the, White Stripes. Uh, it's, the, it's the video about Legos. It's the Lego video. Oh, it is of Legos. Fell in love with a girl. Yeah. Is that from the one with the red and black cover? Yes. They're oh. all red and black. Oh, but yes, but yes. <laughs> uh, now I have the song and in my head. Shoot, have mercy. Yeah, but no, and it's uh, another example of this going back to the early Middle White Ages. Blood cells, by the way, is the album. There we go. Thank you. Okay. Um, going back to the early Middle Ages, watching uh, the Last Kingdom, a show that I particularly enjoy about the Danes and the Brits and mm -hmm. uh, Alfred trying to unite Great Britain. One of the things that, and I've actually read this in other texts too, so it's not just the TV show, which they obviously drew from these texts. One of the complaints by the Danes as to why they do not want to worship the Christian God is because the Christians were so joyless and seemed to actually treat life, life as if it was a burden to be bear, born rather than something to be celebrated and enjoyed. And that's something coming from Danes. Right, exactly. Coming from the Northern Danes, the Black Danes, as they were called. They were pretty dour <laughs> Folk. I was going to say, when you're called the Black Danes by other people who are pretty dour to begin with. <laughs> yeah, it is something. It is something. I mean, see how they love one another is is the example in Acts, a positive example, yes. right? Right. And, right. And, and joyful. I mean, we'd say love and joy are mm -hmm. come to the, I don't know, I've got a Christmas song in my head. But there we go. Yeah, that they go together, right? right. It's, there's, there's a way that love can be mm, just like rote obedience, right? Or right. obligation or duty. Right, um, or it can be f f for the joy that was set before right. him, as as it said of Jesus. You and know? if you look up the the actual meaning of joy, for example, because um, I had to do this because growing up in the Upper Midwest, uh, I don't <laughs> like that term. <laughs> mm -hmm. How dare you tell me I have to be joyous? Uh, but I always I always interpreted joy in the context in which it had been used historically when I was growing up, which is slappy, happy, mm -hmm. super yeah, happiness, you know, right. over the top, right. And especially in the upper Midwest, where like people are super, super happy, happy say. Yeah. they're definitely covering up something <laughs> really mm -hmm. dark. Watch mm -hmm. Fargo. Um, 
But then when I looked up joy, which means to be satisfied with what is or with, with what you've received, then all of a sudden it made sense that joy, like the gospel, for example, that joy in the gospel is to be satisfied with God's word of absolution. Mm -hmm. you, you don't have any reason to be terrified anymore. Receive this comfort, receive this consolation, your sin is forgiven. Yeah, and Melanchthon distinguishes the two because he says how much joy and gladness, right. know, that they're not the same thing, that the, but they're complementary. Right. Yeah. right. So could you say contentment? Is that a... Content, a, satisfied. But not in a like, oh, it's enough kind of way. It is enough. No, that's a, I was going to say that's what satisfaction means. It is enough. Satisfied. Yeah. yeah, but we yeah. think of it, it's enough as, as, as in it's... Um, Full. I can't eat another bite. <laughs> no, I think like in a minimal sense. We can do it both ways probably in a maximal and yeah. minimal sense. Right? Sure. Where like I only have enough... And it's, I'm, I'm satisfied. Only, but, yeah. only two Lutherans on a podcast would spend any time <laughs> d drilling down into the broad and narrow meaning of the word satisfaction. Well, but it's true that we, I mean, we try, I don't know, my congregational life's, life's I guess, I, I do feel like I'm on my third life here. Um, you know, it has often been about like, what's the, what's the least that we can do? Or what's the least that no, we absolutely. can receive? No, I, okay, I understand what you're saying now. Yeah, yeah it's, a, it's a minimal, and we should... It's and I, satisfactory. I, satisfactory, right. yeah, that's satisfactory, there you go. Yeah. You've done the bare minimum. Well, and I end up pastorally being like, I just have to find a way to be content with this little that these <laughs> that these folks are willing right. to give, right? Or yeah. to do. Right. Mm -hmm. Versus um, when I, on Saturday, we re, the trustees and I, we re, rebuilt our back deck, took all day. And we got done. And everybody kind of cleared out and it was just me and just standing on my deck, looking out at the backyard and everything and saying, this is good. It's good. This is good. Yeah. In the, in the sense of. Yeah. It's more than, it's more than good. good. In the sense of this is enough. This is more than enough that mm -hmm. this happened and that I can look out and go, this is, this is enough. I don't want to say this is mine because I don't tend to look at things that way anymore. No. I tend to look at the backyard and the deck and everything that went into it as. This is a this is an, um, this is a gift that I don't deserve. It's a temporary or temporal gift, right? Yeah, absolutely. But nonetheless, still gift to stare at the green grass and the blooming trees and the flowers and the beds and the garden and the fresh wood on the deck and everything except the mosquitoes and gnats. <laughs> I can say, I know, man, they're horrible. Good night. It's good. I can say it's good, and I mean that in the sense of like, how, how can I possibly complain? Yeah. So that's satisfaction, not satisfactory. Right, exactly. It's satisfaction with, look at what the Lord has done for you yeah, in an earthly sense. Yeah, like satisfest, we say the Latin, it's right. enough. It's enough, it's enough, exactly. But not in a minimal, in a maximal way. Like, yes. What else do we need? Shalom. In Hebrew, we would say shalom. Oh, okay. Yeah, good. That shalom is not just peace be with you. Shalom is, in the Hebrew sense, everything's all right. Everything's good. Everything is enough. Thank you, Doobie Brothers. There we go. Right, just dropping the song references left and right today. But nonetheless, this is, you see this in the history of Israel, for example, with Psalm 23. Mm -hmm. You know, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. It's that sense of not just, like with the catechism, daily bread isn't just what's the food on your table. Daily bread is everything you need for this body and life and the life to come. Yeah, it's all done. And, it's all good. Right. So being a father is a part of the daily bread that my children pray for in the Lord's Prayer. Mm. Um, the back lawn and living in quiet, if not peace, which is impossible for us, but to live in quiet and to say, we are privileged in that we get to live in a place that we have acreage and we can live in quiet. And um, the Lord has given that to us in the way of gift. And therefore, it's easy to fall back on pride and to fall back on what we call the ego and to fall back on selfishness and pettiness and say, well, how come I can't have what he has? Or how come we don't have what they have? Versus, well, what do you need for this body and life? Yeah. What do you really need? We've talked about poverty, uh, intentional, like self-chosen poverty, or right. maybe like little versions of poverty, like fasting. Mm -hmm. um, and it, it was a big craze, not that many years ago, but like, you know, like small houses and, and minimal you know, learning Absolutely. to live a minimal life, favorite like going YouTube to channels, IKEA, right? And living in 200 square feet, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and, and I can see the appeal of it because um, as Jesus, you know, warns about wealth in particular, mm -hmm. right? And amassing right. fortunes and barns and, and all of that. Um, right. It's, it's, it's a, 
really a vain pursuit. It has no end. It's, bo- it's well, bottomless. I, think, I can't remember if I mentioned here before, but something there's a common thread through some of the great leaders in history like Cyrus and Alexander and Marcus Aurelius, which is that all of that excess leads to laziness and leads to contentedness in a bad way, that you become lazy, uh, you become cruel, actually, because you're taking constantly from everybody else to fuel your this extravagant life that you've gotten used to. Or the war machine or whatever it is, right? Well, not even that, because you basically give that away. You don't run the military anymore because you're too busy throwing parties and you're too busy oh, that enjoying your wealth. Yeah, like, like the collapse of Rome. Right, so the complaint about Cyrus was that he, when they conquered Babylon, he was he set his tent up in the front of the palace and he wouldn't live in the palace because he's, his attitude was like, no, I have to live like my troops live because I care about my troops. I don't care about living in palaces. It's like, and, the, C, the, like the CEO that drives, drives up in the old beater and doesn't actually right, drive a nice right. car. And they're like, don't you understand that you like, right. you, we need you to be the icon of success? Right, Yeah. right. Alexander was the same way, mm. lived in a tent, hated to live in a palace. In fact, moved into a palace and then he died. Uh, or he might have died in the Senate, I can't remember. Um, again, historical accounts vary. Yeah. Same thing with Marcus Aurelius. Marcus Aurelius meditated on this most of his adult life, is that prosperity and wealth and power and influence, as the old analogy, you know, the old saying goes, it corrupts. Absolutely, it corrupts. Mm-hmm. And therefore, simplicity, not only simplicity of your relationships, but simplicity of your interior life as well, your thoughts, your emotions, and so forth. It is always a striving after simplicity, not for the sake of simplicity itself, but rather to be satisfied with only those things that are necessary for this body and life and nothing more. Yeah, we see this play out um, in the church in Acts. you know, where they- Yeah, holding all things in common. Yeah, and it wasn't wasn't just like like a, what a forced poverty upon everyone or kind right. of this socialistic kind of thing. Um, but it was that, look, we have these properties, right? Mm-hmm. Like Anna and Sapphire, right? They sell the property and the, it, it, the whole point was is that we didn't need it. And so right. the Lord gave it to us to benefit our neighbor, right? right. But if we right. hold on to it, even like a small percentage of it, because, you know, and we're gonna lie about it, um, mm-hmm. you know, and it's, not a, it's no longer a blessing to us, it actually becomes a curse right. to us. Well, and at its root, it is if the gospel cannot be preached and the sacraments administered and we can't gather together as the body of Christ, and this then is dispersed, it's scattered, especially in the midst of persecution, then what good is our wealth if we don't have the gospel? Yeah, that's actually the only good that we have. Right, right. All the other things can go and that'd be fine. This is the truly perverse bent of the prosperity gospel is that it takes the one thing which is deplorable and uses the the, the title gospel as a justification for wow. yeah. the very thing that the that the book of Acts, they're basically trying to get, you know, distinguish these two things. When I've talked about priority and commitment, you know, to, right. to your congregation, to the church at large, um, which it's it's okay. It's a fine it's a fine way to kind of talk about it, but it really it's I think it's soft it's a soft <laughs> It doesn't quite get to the point, which is really the only priority that matters for you, for your family, um, is is the gospel. Right. And I talk about this a lot of what is the value of your church versus the monetary worth of your church? Mm, Okay. Yeah. Value versus worth on a personal level. I talk about that all the time. What is my personal value versus my actual monetary worth? And then likewise, within the context of the church as an organization, Mm. what is the value of your congregation to you? as a member of this church versus the monetary worth or the the worth of the building and the grounds and all that's inside of it. I remember hearing, a, what was a grandchild of a, one of the founding congregations, great grandchild or something, a founding congregation in Saxon County uh, for the Missouri Synod. And the only thing that's left there are the front steps from the church, the, the church is yeah, gone. Right. And talking about, you know, recast it in a way I thought was really helpful and talking about how Everyone that was a part of that parish ended up having to dis- disperse, but he himself and his family had settled after Saxon, uh, mm-hmm. after Perry County, you know, the Saxon immigration, uh, settled in one of the Dakotas. Or we have a bunch of Missouri Synod Lutherans up there. And um, and now, you know, have founded multiple congregations and, and the gospel spread, even though the original place where they started is gone. Mm, right? And, sure. And so the idea of how do you, uh, what story do you tell or about legacy? Right and and value mm-hmm. and the value of all the work that was done, you know. And sometimes yeah. we judge the value of what was done based upon 
what's going on right now. Yes, right. Rather, rather than say what happened then, what was the value then? Because now the value mm-hmm. has changed. Um, we have a different value today. We're different people today. No, the world has changed. Right, right. right. And we can be valuable to our neighbor in a different way too. Perhaps. Right. You know, maybe our priorities shift. But the gospel still must be preached. And that's the only thing of value that actually persisted through the whole thing. That's the pearl of great price, right? That's mm-hmm. the man gave away everything he had to buy that field. Yeah. Yeah. And so orient so we orient our whole life around that. I mean, even doing something like as silly as uh maybe moving because there's a faithful congregation in a town rather than, and mm-hmm. having to have a longer yeah. commute rather rather than move somewhere closer to work but not right. have a church that you can go to. Right. Right. No hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. Good. So jumping forward now to page 86, in a similar vein, the apostle contrasts the face of Moses with that of Christ in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 13 and following. Moses terrified the people with a glance of his countenance, as we have stated above. For who could bear the majesty of divine judgment when even the prophet deprecates it? Quote, enter not into judgment with thy servant. Psalm 143, verse 2. When the disciples see the glory of Christ on Mount Tabor, such a new and wonderful joy floods their hearts that Peter, forgetting himself, exclaims, quote, Lord, it is well that we are here. If you wish, I will make booths here. Matthew chapter 17, verse 4. Here is a view of the grace and mercy of God. That's nice. Isn't That's it? real nice. Yeah, we don't think about... Uh, mm. I don't think it always resonates, I should say, uh, the way that, that Sinai is portrayed in the scriptures. Mm-hmm. as n- Right. I mean, there is actually gospel in the midst of that. The, the elders are gathered upon the mountain to feast, right? Yeah, right, right. Or at least a little picture. Mm-hmm. Um, but they can't bear Moses. Yeah, Luther makes that quip in his, le- his Exodus lectures where he says that Moses is the first Christian. <laughs> really? Because that's where God gives him the law and the promise. Yeah. So, there, I mean, he is given to feast upon the mountain. Not everybody is, though, right? Right. They can't right. touch the mountain. So it's this uh, incomplete picture or... And what is, what is the word? That the people were terrified and would not go any further. They would not approach the mountain. Well... And how and far away were they from the mountain? I heard they a commentary this last week that um, suggested that the, the defining moment is Sinai, not because of the tablets, but because of the golden calf. Right. And, well, you see this in Acts, right? Why uh-huh. do they stone Stephen to death? Because he makes a reference back to it. Exactly. So that is in the consciousness of the people of what did we do? Right, exactly. I mean, even the law was being given as gift, and, and yet we, we, we did the whole like garden thing again. <laughs> right, right, exactly. Make our own gods. Yeah. Right. In, in every people's history, there is an event that they do not want brought up in history class. And for mm-hmm. Israel, that's theirs. Yeah, and uh, American history. I mean, uh, I had one history teacher that wanted to talk Vietnam, but otherwise nobody wanted right. to tell the history. That's and, right. and the history is confusing on that too. I mean, it's not... It's At uh, that time, it was for sure in the mid-80s. <laughs> well, because yeah. everybody... That's the problem with history is it can be used for um, agendas. Always. Either, either positive Always. or negative. Right, yeah. always. Like I, I mentioned this, we're studying John in our Bible study and uh, wedding at Cana. I mean, why does John write it? Well, he's very clear. Mm-hmm. These things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. Right. So God. He does the miracle and the disciples believed in him. That's what it says. Right. It says it right in the text. Uh, so he's telling this story, not just as pure, like did it actually happen or not, although right. I think it did, um, but for the sake of faith that we would believe that Jesus is our savior. I was gonna say, there's a certain idolatry when it comes to history in that, in historiography in particular, that mm. is the writing and teaching of history, there's an idolatry to it that up until very recently, we assumed that history was an objective fact. And then with- Like the, journalism, right? <laughs> right, exactly. Well, you see that exactly to the point is that with the advent of social media and the internet and the proliferation of information that's available to so many people and the veil gets pulled back, it started happening in the mid 20th century with history. But now, following Vietnam, it really accelerated. And, and of course, now with media, we recognize, oh, we have access to people and things like never before. And the the objectivity that we assumed is being exposed for what it is, 
Yeah. And you recognize that, oh, every historian has a political bent, an ideological bent. They have their prejudices and presuppositions like anybody else. Same thing with journalists, politicians, whoever, you know, name it. And that disillusionment that comes with that is like a child recognizing for the first time that his parents are just people. Yeah. They're not gods. They're not superheroes. They're just people. Mm-hmm. And sadly, it's when adults act like children that discover that. It's the emperor has no clothes analogy. When there is nothing to fall back on, such as, I don't know, the good news of Jesus Christ. Yeah. Then your identity is tied up in your ideologies, your politics, your um, assumption of objectivity, so to speak. The stories you tell about yourself. Right, exactly. That's exactly, that's the very, that's the postmodern move is to make everything narrative. Mm -hmm. And of course, in the last 20 years, it's been find your own truth. Right. And it can be just an internal monologue. Yes, Absolutely which hmm. is often then projected outward onto a group. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's where you see these different movements become fundamentalistic, almost religious in their fundamentalism, in in their need to control reality mm-hmm. and yeah. make words mean what they want them to mean in order so that reality can be what they want it to be. Verse, and this is the challenge of the church right now, of course, is we actually do believe in an objective truth. We, we actually believe God's word does what it says it does, that there is true law and true gospel. There is a real God and that he has spoken definitively on these, on these matters and that the church is the vehicle through which he locates himself for us in time and space. And that's why we fight so, oh, I, I mean, fight's probably not, not too strong of a word. We fight for the proper decision law gospel. We, um, we insist upon, um, you know, preaching the gospel and its truth right. and purity, uh, sacraments again. Right. Why? Because it's it's the only solid ground in this world in our lives. Right. It's well. That's why I use the word revolt. We revolt against God in our sinfulness, and then we revolt against the world in our in our newness in Christ through faith. And so we're always in conflict. That's like uh, the psalmist said. Let me just put you on a on a you know on a boat in a storm tossed sea. Right. Which is why, to Philip's point. If the gospel is not truly consoling and truly joyous, then you're just, you're like that Japanese soldier on the island in his pillbox 30, 40 years after the war ended, refusing to believe Mm. that it's over. And your whole life just becomes a grind. It's just fight, fight, fight. And eventually what ends up happening is you confuse fighting with the world and fighting with God. Mm. and And you just end up treating everyone as a threat. Having lost your first love. Right, exactly. Everyone's your enemy. Right. Hmm. Yes, since since my first love betrayed me, then that must mean that all relationships will end this way. And <laughs> uh, maybe they're not the problem. Maybe you are. Exactly right. Maybe. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you see a pattern let's, here? Let's, yes. What's the common thread? So thus, yeah, when you have Moses, he terrifies. When you have Christ, it's, a, it's joy that floods their hearts. Until uh, the Father speaks from heaven, by the way. Right, yes. (laughs) So then Philip continues, here is a view of the grace and mercy of God. Just as a glance at the bronze serpent saved men in the wilderness, so are they saved who have fixed eyes of faith on the cross of Christ. Excuse me, John chapter 3, verses 14 and following. Mm -hmm. Therefore, the apostles most fittingly called their joyful message, euangelion or euangelion, meaning good tidings or good news. For the Greeks also commonly designate their announcements and public commendation of deeds well done as euangelion, good tidings, good news. For example, in Isocrates, we read, twice already have we brought good tidings, end quote. And gospel being God's spell, that's uh, good words from God, right? Right, good words from God, mm-hmm. exactly. God's words. Which always then, for me, begs the question, if someone calls what they're saying the gospel and it's not good words from God, what do you mean then by gospel? Hmm. If it if it doesn't comfort, if it doesn't produce joy, which is a fruit of the spirit, by the way, check out Galatians, then what kind of gospel are you preaching? Well, we even have this expression, um, you know, that's gospel to me. And yeah. even if it's not, if there's no words, never mind words from God, they're not even words. Right. Like, like, like um, oh, I don't know. My dog is, is, is a gospel to me because it brings me comfort. And like, um, right. is that, I mean, it's not the same thing. No. Well, I hope not, because unless your dog can raise you from the dead. Or your dog is like, uh, you know, Balaam's ass or something. Well, I was going to say, or the son of Sam. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, dogs don't (laughs) preach. So, 
Um, that doesn't mean that they're not, uh, you know, mercy from God, right? <laughs> um, First article gifts. Yeah, yeah, and absolutely unconditional in their acceptance that's of you. The, that's the, the beauty of comfort dogs. That's why comfort dogs are so awesome. Right, it's comfort, but but not from the good news of the gospel. No. Yeah, that's a different thing. Um, right. Yeah. You know. And mm. that again is that distinction. So how how can they believe unless they hear and they have right. someone sent to them and how to can they preach hear if them? they don't have a preacher exactly? And right. to the point too, to wrap this up, if you wonder, well, how can the gospel be consoling and, and joyous? Well, that's because the law has first been preached lawfully to you. And if you say, I have no joy or I have no comfort in the gospel, right? Um, that's actually a statement of the law. Yes, The accusation absolutely. of the law is that, yes, you're trying to find the gospel in yourself. Right, you're, <laughs> you're cut loose from your baptismal moorings, mm -hmm. and now you're adrift, as you said in the words of the psalm, you're kind of a ship tossed about by the sea. And as Dr. Nagel says, instead of going wetly garmented all the way in your <laughs> baptism, you know, like the little fishes in Tertullian's analogy of baptism, what ends up happening is that the, the little fishes that swim in the waters of baptism, they try to jump out of the water. And of course, what happens when a fish jumps out of the water is it dies, it suffocates. Mm -hmm. It drowns on oxygen, actually. And this is what happens when we are removed from our baptismal waters, our baptismal identity, is we're trying to find that good news wherever it may be, and as good as it may feel, whether it's a comfort dog or whether it's standing on my deck at the end of the a long, hard day of work and saying, hey, it's all gift, mm -hmm. or whether it's being able to go to bed at night with the people you know around you and your family whom you love, that's all daily bread, but that none of those things are actually the good news of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sin. No, and so I, I guess, going back to my question, you know, if you're not, you're saying, well, in our in our experience, this isn't a joyous place, or it's it's not. Um, I'm not finding joy here. Um, the it, it does it does beg the question. Um, maybe the gospel is not being preached, right? Which falls back on you, yeah, the preacher, pastor. So I mean, that's how I hear it. I'm, you're not hearing the gospel from me, or more specifically, to my point too. Uh, maybe that's because you're not preaching the law and its lawfulness. It could be you're not terrifying and convicting them of their sin. So that the gospel has its full sweetness, right? You're uh, you're leaving them an out, so to speak. But then again, like I said, we don't want to take dead yet. <laughs> we don't want to take control of of the verbs. This is God's preaching, right? Right. So so there is the also the aspect that um, in your sinful rebellion, you refuse to hear the gospel, right? There's that too. Even right. if the preacher well, is preaching it, um, that's why uh, lawfully and sweetly the word. That's why Doctor Luther always exhorts his students to pray before you read the Bible, pray before you exegete and, and pray before you begin your sermons and so forth. Why? Because only the Holy Spirit possesses the art of distinguishing law from gospel. And therefore, what do we pray? We pray that we may become an instrument of the Spirit so that the law is preached lawfully and the gospel preached evangelically. Yeah, like John uh, the Baptist, right? I diminish yes. so that he may increase. Right, exactly. So you're right. It's, it's not either or in this case, it's mm. both and. Is that rhetorically, from a purely human standpoint, yeah, you're called to preach law and gospel. So know it, but above that is still the work of the spirit who brings the word and preaches the well, word. Well, he is and called the comforter after all. There is that. I would call him Convicting. the joy bringer. <laughs> right. Even though you want to be called the joy killer. Um, dream killer. Dream killer. <laughs> <laughs> well, he's the joy bringer. I mean, he brings joy. Yes, he brings comfort. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Convicting the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that judgment is, well, you don't measure up and you need to repent. Sometimes that judgment is, you are justified, you are forgiven for Christ's sake, go in peace. There is, of course, the, the history lesson of the Old Testament, uh, where you see that God does withhold um, his promise for a time yes. from folks. Right. Well, in Isaiah, right? That mm -hmm. I have taken away from you, your soldiers and mighty men, and your leaders will now be women and young children. <laughs> and you're going to have to live with it for a while. Yeah, enjoy that. <laughs> there's also exiles, multiple exiles, which are uh, little pictures few. of that, right? Where right. Uh, if there's no joy today, um, maybe the Lord's trying to tell you something. So next episode, then we're going to dive back into Philip on the power of the law. We're going to dive into the whole matter of grace. Power of the gospel. Which is you great mean? because, what did I say? Power of the law? You did. Wow. Look at me. Um, power of the gospel. And we'll dive into this whole matter. What is grace? Oh yeah. Because we've, uh, we've had a few issues with that word. Yeah. Well, and... Again, imagine Philip writing in 1521 about grace. Mm. He's got to basically explain to his Roman Catholic opponents, yeah, no, you're wrong. That's we've not talked what grace about it is. in other contexts, but uh, we'll, and we'll repeat it in the next episode. Um, you know, grace in the medieval Roman 
definition actually bears yeah. an uncanny resemblance to the modern evangelical movement. 100%. Right. Yeah. They're two sides of the same So point. I think it's, it's worth our exploration. <laughs> 100%. And Philip, I'm sure we'll do a bang up job. It's been good so far. Plenty of, yeah, right. So I hope you enjoy that as we've been encouraging you throughout uh, this series. Go buy the, the Lochi. It's fantastic stuff. You can't do wrong by it. It's a great read. And yeah, super we're recording readable. this in the yeah, summer. Very readable. Now is the perfect time to, to dig into it is the summer. And not quite as academic as some of other, um, some of the other Melanchthon works. Right, exactly. This is the young Melanchthon, 21, 22 years old, still fiery and, and really excited about the Reformation and what's happening in Wittenberg, and it comes out in the writing, I think. And even though he's not called as pastor, he's acting very pastorally here. Right, he's nailing it. So, mm-hmm. hope you enjoyed that. Thanks once again uh, for all the support that you offer us. We appreciate everything you do for this podcast and for higher things. Enjoy the conferences this summer. We love you. We'll see you next week. Peace.